Welcome. A special thank you to Mr. Mark and Mrs. Phyllis Barrison for sponsoring this evening's class. Thank you so much. A special thank you as well to Torah Anytime, who shares this class with uh, many people around the country and around the world. The topic this evening is living with passion. And this is a topic that I'm passionate about. There is a, a terrible ep epidemic in the 1920s where you have healthy people who were young and energetic without any history of, of medical problems. And then they would start feeling some joint pain and within a couple weeks they would have a hard time moving. And within a few months, some of them became so paralyzed, they, they were in this catatonic state where they could barely move, there was no facial expression, and it seemed like they were totally numb to the world around them. This was known at the time as the sleeping sickness, and it's estimated that more than five million people were affected with this disease worldwide. Dr. Oliver Sacks, is a name you might have heard of before, a well-known neurologist who passed away recently. In the, in the summer of 1969, he, uh, he moved to the Bronx near Beth Abraham Hospital, where they had many of these patients, some of them there for 30 or 40 years in that, in that state. And he made it his mission to try to figure out something, to try to find a cure. He had the idea, after a lot of research and analysis, to use a drug. It was a new drug at the time, Ladopa. L-Dopa was something that was used for treating Parkinson's, and he thought that it might, have, it might have an impact on these patients as well. And uh, he writes, he uh, was obviously a very gifted neurologist and also a uh, well-known author. He writes as follows. They would be conscious and aware, yet not fully awake. They would sit motionless and speechless all day in their chairs, totally lacking energy, impetus, motive, appetite, effect, or desire. They registered what went on about them without active attention and with profound indifference. They neither conveyed nor felt the feeling of life, they were as insubstantial as ghosts and as passive as zombies. That's when he first met these patients. Then as they were treated, and some of them were literally coming back to life, and they were moving and they were communicating for the first time in years, he writes in his diary, I moved to an apartment 100 yards from Beth Abraham Hospital in the Bronx. And I would sometimes spend 12 to 15 hours a day with our patients, observing them, talking with them, getting them to keep notebooks and keeping endless notes myself. Thousands of words each day. And if I had a pen in one hand, I had a camera in the other. I was seeing such things as never perhaps been seen before and which in all probability would never be seen again. Says Dr. Sachs, he felt that it was his duty and his joy to record and bear witness to this phenomenon. The idea of the sleeping sickness, and we know the famous book that he authored, 
Awakenings that was made into a movie with um, Robin Williams, right? Oliver Shalom. He was a sincere fellow, and the way he records his interactions with these people, after being almost dead for decades, how they would just grab onto his hand, and through the warmth of human touch, they would be revitalized. And then he would bring them outside, and they'd be able to breathe in the, the fresh air. They listened to music. The music they were accustomed to was the modern music of 1924, and they wanted to hear that music again. And some of them were actually dancers. So they started to try to do their dance moves. Forty years later, he said it was the most amazing thing he ever experienced in his life. People who really lived with passion, who were really emotionally connected to everything around them because it was so new and it was so wonderful. So although Baruch Hashem, we do not suffer from this sleeping sickness, I think we do on some level. And I think sometimes the most depressing reality is when we're not feeling much at all. And I'd rather be sad than having a sense of apathy. I'd rather feel a loss than feel emptiness. So we walk around, we do our thing, but on some level we're all experiencing this, this epidemic of the sleeping sickness. We're living without passion, we're living without emotion, we have relationships, we have things that we're into, we have things that we do, but there's something missing. We quoted on Shabbos during the drasha from Shlomo Volbe, who was one of the great personalities of the 20th century, and he said that the ability to learn something in depth or if you have a brilliant mind to be creative and to think in a very deep way, that's a gift. But the goal of life, says Revolva, is not about thinking deeply. It's about living deeply. And that difference makes all the difference in the world. I could think very you know, sophisticated thoughts, I could share them with you, I could sit here and give a nice drosha. But unless we're living that way, then we're missing the boat entirely. There's a quote from one of the philosophers of the 20th century. He said, men must live and create, live to the point of tears. And I think in Torah Hashkafa, that's something we strive for. We want to live to the point of tears, to be as involved and present and engaged in life that we're emotional and we're, we're really feeling existence. And this is true in two dimensions. Dimension number one is our avodas Hashem, our pursuit of spirituality, wanting to be engaged and involved. And the second dimension is with everything else we do in life. I'll share with you two powerful sources when it comes to Avodas Hashem. The, uh, the famous Mishnah in the end of Brachos tells us, this is quoting the verse we say twice a day in Shema, You should love Hashem with all of your heart. So explains the Mishnah, Bechol means b'shnei yitzrecha, with both of your inclinations, b'yetzer tov v'b'yetzer hara. We have to love Hashem with our good inclination, and we also have to love Hashem with our evil inclination. So the obvious question is, what does that mean? How do I love Hashem with my evil inclination? So some explain that when we say yetzer tov and yetzer hara, it doesn't mean that I have a good force within me and an evil force within me. There is such a thing. 
There is an idea of, of a koach, of tahara, the power of, of, of purity and, and kedusha and sanctity that propels me towards good. And there is such a thing called the koach hatuma. There's a, the power of the source of impurity that draws me towards evil. But that's not what the Mishnah is referring to. When the Mishnah says, Bechol levavcha, love Hashem, with your yetzer tov, that means with your intellect, with your mind. With all of my capacities to think and to probe and to analyze, all channeled towards Hashem. How do I love Hashem with my Yetzahara? It doesn't mean my evil inclination, but it means the, the animal within me. We're made of body and soul. Love Hashem with your soul, but also your body. Meaning my ambition, my passion, my, my emotion to channel everything towards Hashem. That's source number one. Source number two we find this in Parshas Ekev, the Torah instructs us, that you should guard literally the entire mitzvah that I instruct you today. Now it should have said, in the plural, you should guard all of the mitzvahs, do everything I told you to do. Yet it says, the entire mitzvah. Reb Chaim Vital uh, was one of the great disciples of the Arizal. The Arizal, we know, was the, the master of Kabbalah in the 1500s, living in Svas, in that magical period where you had of Shlomo Al-Kabetz and the Sefer Haredim and the Beis Yosef, all of these amazing personalities in, in one area. Reb Chaim Vital was the main disciple of the Arizal, and he himself writes that out of all the students of the Arizal, I was the only one who was granted permission to record his teachings. It sounds like the Arizal had a very special connection with Rechaim Vital, and he trusted him. So Rechaim Vital says, what is the Torah teaching us when it says, if shmartim is kol ha-mitzvah, you should guard the entire mitzvah? He writes that just as a human being is comprised of body and soul, we have a guf and a neshama, every mitzvah has a guf and a neshama. Every mitzvah has a body and soul. The body of the mitzvah is the performance of the mitzvah. Going through the behaviors, knowing what to do and how to do it and when to do it. The soul of the mitzvah, though, is what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and how conscious I am during the mitzvah. That's breathing life into the mitzvah. I remember reading about the Chazon Ish. The Chazon Ish, one of the, the greatest personalities, he died in 1953, of Ram Yeshai Karelitz. And uh, his level of hasmada, of intensity and connection to learning, and it, was, it was unmatched. So people who were around him when he davened, they said that he would be davening Shman Esrei, he'd be in the middle of his silent prayer, and you could see his face with intensity and feeling, and you would see him starting to cry, he was clearly davening for someone, for a refuah, or for parnasa, or for a shidduch. And then, within a few minutes of that same tefillah, you would see him with a, with a smile on his face, almost laughing, going through this whole roller coaster of emotions as he's communicating with the, with the Boreolam. That's what it means to serve Hashem, b'shnei yitzrecha, hatov, with my intellect, and my passion and my emotions. That's dimension number one in our Vodas Hashem. Dimension number two is how we live life in general. And this is what brings us back to the Parsha this coming week. Torah tells us in the very beginning of Chayasara, the Tamas Sara Arba, that Sara passed away in Kiryas Arba, 
which is now known as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Avraham came to eulogize Sarah and to cry for her. So you can just imagine Avraham and Sarah married for so many decades. And any relationship we know that unless we share common values, it's hard to have a real strong, passionate relationship. Avraham and Sarah were the, the paradigm of love. They were working together. Avram Megayar Esha Nashim, he was working with the men, she was working with the women, together changing the world, having tens of thousands of disciples, bringing in the whole notion of monotheism, and also teaching, teaching humanity what it means to be human. And after all this work, she passes away. You could imagine how devastated he was. The question that the Ramban is bothered by is, and this is one word, we're going to see there's one word here that could teach us a whole world of, of insight. Why does it say the Yavo Avraham, that Avraham came to eulogize and to cry for her? Where is he coming? And he was out golfing, and then he saw on his cell phone, he got the text, heard about the bad news. Okay, so he came back into the tent and he eulogized and he cried for Sarah. Where was he? Says the Ramban, an amazing insight. He was right there. When the Torah says, Vayavo Avram, it doesn't mean he changed his geographical location. Vayavo means psychologically, he brought himself to the point, in the words of the Ramban, Shinnis Oror Avram, he awakened himself to be able to really feel that loss and to cry and to mourn over his wife. The, the, the awesome insight here is that we would have assumed that Avram wouldn't need to awaken himself. He's there, he's feeling it. He, this is the love of his life who's no longer with him, his partner in life. He would be devastated. Why does he have to work on feeling the pain? It's a strange thing. And we find a similar thing when it comes to Moshe. In the beginning of Moshe's life, the Torah tells us that he grew up and he went outside to see his brothers. The famous Pasuk we have in Shmos, he went to see his brothers, and he saw their suffering. He saw the Jews who were going through this terrible oppression. What does it mean he saw their suffering? Rashi comes along and says, it doesn't just mean he happened to see it with his eyes, but he placed his eyes and his heart Leos Meitzer Elehim, to feel their suffering. So again, it wasn't just a natural response to seeing something terrible. He had to, he had to be proactive. He had to bring up those emotions. Avram Avinu and Moshe Rabbeinu, they needed to focus on the moment to fully realize the moment. The Torah is teaching us that we can't complain about not feeling passion. We can't complain about not feeling connected because those things don't happen automatically. The only way to really tune into something, if it's a tragedy or if it's a simcha, I want to be part of this joyous experience, the only way to do that is by being proactive and putting myself in that mindset. That's true with every aspect of life. The story about Chaim Shmulevitz, Chaim Shmulevitz, one of the great personalities in, in Eretz Yisrael, when he was an older man, his children would censor the newspaper before he would read it. 
Now, what would they take out? He, he was reading a very kosher publication. What are they taking out of there? Any story that was tragic, if there was a terrorist attack or there was an accident, they would make sure to take that out of the newspaper before he would read it. Because what would he do if he came across a story like that? He would read it the first time, and then he would go over it, and then he would picture every person involved in this, in this tragedy. Right? If there was a, a 19-year-old boy who was killed while he was serving in the IDF, he would first think of the mother, and he would say to himself, Ay, the mama, ay, the mama. Picturing it, feeling it, putting himself in that situation. And then he would think about his father. Ay, the tata, ay, the tata, and the brothers. And if he was married, the, the almana, his widow, and the children. Now, they felt it wasn't healthy for him when he was an older man, so they had to make sure he didn't do that. But, but that's a person living in the 20th century who is emulating the way of Avram, he's following in the path of Moshe. Uh, he understood fully that in order to really feel anything, you have to be proactive. So this is true in our Avodah Hashem, and it's true in every other aspect of life. Now what I've seen throughout my life is the people who are most passionate about, about any cause are the people who they themselves have been through something similar. And if you'll notice, any foundation, any organization, any person or group doing amazing things, more often than not, it's based on the leader or the founder or the creator of that group. They themselves went through something in this area of life, and therefore they feel a special connection with it, and they want to help the world. I'll share with you the Medjish Rabbah, that, that seems to really bring this point to light. The Medrash tells a story that there was once a Gibor, there was a strong person, that it sounds like he was a, a captive, and they put a chain around his neck. And that's how he lived for who knows how long. Eventually, they took that chain off of him and he was freed. As time passed, he was getting back to his normal life. He passed by someone else who was now a captive, who had that same chain around his neck. And he began to scream. He was screaming, oh my gosh! So his friends or his family, they saw the exact same thing, and they said to him, why are you screaming? So Omer Lahani said to them, Don't you know? I know the pain he's going through. I had that same chain around my neck. I get it. I understand it. I've been there. You were never there. If we've been through any experience, and we have all have our stories, we all have our, our disyonos, our challenges, you have to appreciate that those are the things in life that we have the most connection to and potentially we could do the most about. Because we're the only people who get it. I remember... 
in Michigan for a few months, when I was in the world of, of medicine, there were so many different amazing groups and, and organizations. And uh, there was one particular fellow that came to me and said, we have a special uh, group of fathers. Everyone's so focused on the children who are going through whatever medical issues they're going through, or they're focused on the mothers, but the dads are often left out. Do you want to join the group? So I said, yeah, sure, why not? I'll be part of the group. And I said, I'm curious, who started this? So he said that he did. Why did he start it? Because he had a child who was sick. I, 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 was, I was in touch with someone, her name was Lee, a very special person, and she started this whole other medical group. And again, because she had a child. Everyone is passionate about their cause. It's an amazing reality. There's an organization called Gift of Life. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. It's a, it's a bone marrow registry. And I do recommend, parenthetically, anyone who has not been swabbed, you should do so. There is a chiv de raisa to do so. But Gift of Life was founded by a fellow named Jay Feinberg. I was Zoha. I had the opportunity to go to a, uh, one of their annual dinners one time. And as dinners go, <laughs> usually sitting through a dinner of any organization, no matter how wonderful they are, and no matter all the wonderful work they do, after like three hours, you just want to like lay on the floor and whine and complain. Why am I still here? Let me go. This is the one dinner that I guarantee nobody was thinking that. What do they do every year? And this is a brilliant move from a marketing standpoint, but it's obviously with sincerity. Every year at their annual dinner, they have people who received bone marrow and whose lives were saved meet their donor for the first time on stage. Right? Can, can, can you picture that scene? So Jay Feinberg, who created this organization in 1991, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, he, together with his family and friends, they had over 250 drives testing more than 60,000 people to see if anybody would be a match. After four years of doing this, day in and day out, they came up with absolutely nothing. Nothing for him. But along the way, because there were so many thousands of people being tested, other lives were saved. There was one young man who heard about Jay's plight, and he thought to himself, I have a good friend that his life was saved through one of these campaigns. They found the match for him. He said, although it's been four years, let me try one more time. And he got the whole group together, one last drive, and here's a modern day miracle in its purest form. It was on, it was on May 1995, the very last donor tested at that very last drive was a match. Unbelievable. A young lady named Becky, and she saved his life. Based on that, he started the organization Gift of Life, and they've been the source of Hatzalas Nefeshos to, to many, many people. So we talk about emotion, we talk about getting passionate, we talk about finding something that we have a, a closeness to, based on our own history, our own background. At the same time, we find sources that tell us we have to keep emotion in check. Got to keep it in check. 
Sometimes when you have a child who senses their parent is getting emotional, they get very awkward. Ever have that as a child or a parent? I remember, I've shared this story before, but whenever driving with my father, so he'd have the radio on, and when Cats in the Cradle came on, <laughs> he always started getting emotional. And I felt so awkward as a nine, ten-year-old boy. Like, let's just change the station. <laughs> Please, Dad. So we have to have control over emotions. And Eliezer, who's known in this Parsha as the Eved Avram, his name is not mentioned once in the entire Parsha. He's only called Eved Avram, the servant of Avram. And the, the Bali Musa explain, he was called the Eved Avram because his whole mission was, I'm here for Avraham. I'm solely devoted to that cause. The, the, uh, the Medrash tells us that he was known for being Moshel Bechol Asher Lo. That's what the Torah says, that he was in charge of the whole household of Avraham. The Medrash says it wasn't just that he was in charge of his possessions or his cattle, but rather, Eliezer had a shlita. He had a total control over his yetzer, over all of his emotions and, and inclinations, just like Avram had. He's described elsewhere, the Gemara in Yuma says, Eliezer was the, the dolum mashka mitaraso shorabo. He would draw the water from the Torah of his, of his master, Avraham, and then he would share it with others. Eliezer was not just a servant. He was the Rosh Hashiva. He was teaching Torah to the masses. And he had a shlita, he had a control over all of his own emotions and tendencies. The Rambam writes regarding having control over one's emotions. And this Rambam we should spend a moment on because it's often misunderstood. It's quoted often, but it's often misunderstood. The Rambam says, what's the perfect path? What's the derech yeshara? when it comes to our character traits. So he says the famous line, it should be bainanis, it should be right in the middle, the golden mean, which is not too extreme, not too extreme in either direction. Writes the Rambam in Source 13, that's why our sages have taught us, we should always be thinking and contemplating and analyzing our ways and our emotions and our feelings and try to line them up in that middle path. How do you do that? He says, Don't be that kind of person you get angry all the time and, and you're, always, you're always getting bent out of shape. But don't be like a dead person either. She'eno margish, that you don't feel anything. You have to feel, but try to stay in the middle. So how is this Rambam misunderstood? So some will say, clearly we could derive from the Rambam that extremism is bad. You never want to be extreme, because any extreme in either direction is clearly unhealthy. You want to be in the middle. So what does that mean to be in the middle? It's not cold water, and it's not hot water, it's just lukewarm. So I'm not like super friendly and excited and passionate, and I'm not just dead and, and dull and boring, but I'm somewhere in the middle, I kind of care about you, but not really. <laughs> that's the derech soy, that that's the middle path the Rambam is suggesting, doesn't make much sense. So what does the Rambam mean? 
The Rambam is not telling us to be lukewarm. The Rambam is telling us that we shouldn't be controlled by either one of the extremes. The goal is to have control over our emotions to the point where when it's called for, I could be burning hot. And when it's called for, I could be ice cold. It's not about being lukewarm. It's about having shlita, having control over ourselves to the point where we could be as passionate and as extreme as possible when that's the call of the hour. So there is such a thing as healthy extremism. The unhealthy form of extremism is when I don't have control over myself. That's unhealthy. So we have, this is some of the background, the, the goal of being passionate and emotional and connected within our Vodas Hashem and within every other aspect of life. Yet we want to have control, not that we mitigate the emotions, but we channel them and we're able to bring them out in their proper place and proper time. What I want to do now briefly is just share with you a couple of tools. A couple of tools that I've seen in the different sources. How do we tap into that infinite wellspring of emotion? If it's with a spouse, I know I love him, but I'm just not feeling it. If it's with a child, I tell them that I love them, and I explain to them, I just don't like your behavior, but I'm not really feeling that love. I'm not feeling it. How do you tap into that infinite wellspring that we have within us? I think the first step is that we have to realize if we're able to tap into that in any part of life, it carries over. The, the, way, the way emotions work is that they're not limited or confined to one segment of our brain or our, or our soul, but if we're able to be exploding in one area with enthusiasm, that has a, a spillover impact on everything else. There is a young, there is a young man learning in yeshiva, and he was going through a very hard time and he was depressed. So he wrote a letter to the Stipler Gon, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. And he was explaining to him that I go through the motions, I'm getting up for shachris, I'm trying my best, but I just don't feel anything. I'm just checked out. I have my friends who are getting so excited about sheer and about learning things deeper and learning more information and memorizing things. And I'm just, I'm, I'm not feeling anything. So how do I get more into learning? Listen to the advice of the stipler. Source number 14. He wrote him back in a letter. This is part of a larger letter. But he writes, When you awaken a hargasha feeling in one area for one thing, that transforms who I am. I become a person who's now feeling. And that could spread and open up doors to all different areas of life. We have to find that one area that I know I'm passionate about, and then just use it to explode. And that carries over to other things. We had a couple visit here for Shabbos. They were looking into the community. They didn't end up moving. So they ate by us Friday night. And uh, we're schmoozing a little bit, and the husband turns to me and he says... So the, uh, the Friday night davening, is that always how it is? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sensing something. I said, pretty much, pretty much that's our norm. So the guy said, you know, you could probably shave off a good 10 minutes. 
So I got into a little conversation. Um, I asked him the question. I said, let me ask you. Can you name me one thing you do throughout the week? One thing you do within Avodas Hashem that you're actually passionate about, that you're smiling when you're doing it, that you feel some level of, of, of thrill. Just name me one thing. Is it davening shachris? Is it tefillin? Is it your learning after mariv? What is really, really geshmak? And you know, him being an honest guy and also a humble guy, he said, I think it's hard to, to, to say. I think for most people, it's hard to get to that level in any area of, of Avodah Hashem. So I said back, gotcha! Now the point was, is that if you could do something to bring out emotion, so is, is having a musical Friday night the most ideal way of doing it? Who knows? In, in, in you know, objective reality, is it better if we just focused on saying the words without, who knows, should we sing more, should we sing less? The point is, if you have people in a room who are actually davening, and they're actually looking in the sitter and they're not distracted by something else, and they're getting somewhat emotionally connected, then the stipler would say, that is a beautiful way to awaken the emotions for all areas of life. Just got to find that one little area. Here are a couple of quick tools. We have three things here, and there are definitely more to discuss. But the three for now we'll focus on is the power of laughter, allowing ourselves to be awed, and the power of now. Let's start with the power of laughter. My wife and I were in a medical conference about five years ago in Arizona, and it was on Shabbos. Those are always fun, to be there with everyone else on Shabbos and trying to explain to them why you can't take notes. Can I take notes for you? No, it's all right. I'll listen very carefully. So th there is this one thing on the list I was going through that the uh, presenter was going to be presenting the uh, idea of laughter yoga. So me being kind of skeptical, thinking to myself, <laughs> that's going to be laughable, yes. Laughter yoga, what a waste of time. The person gets up there and she says, you're probably thinking that this is, this is somewhat silly. And most people in the room nod their heads. I thought the same thing, but I want to do an exercise with you. So we'll all do it together. Ready? She says, let's start off by chuckling. Just chuckle. <laughs> so we're all looking around each other, you know, and I'm feeling pressure because I'm the guy wearing the yarmulke. So like, if I laugh too much, I look silly. If I'm not laughing at all, they're going to think, oh, the Jewish guy doesn't participate. So I'm trying to, trying to chuckle a little bit, you know. And then she says, okay, now take it from a laugh to, to a chuckle to like a regular laughter. <laughs> Go for it, don't be shy. <laughs> okay. Right. So we're all doing that for a while, right? Uh, Mr. Wachnin, you're not participating. <laughs> and then she says, take it one more point. Laugh like you're uncontrollable. And we're, you know, you're hysterical laughing. <laughs> And the whole room is now cracking up. And I was doing this also, and I realized, this is brilliant. 
this is unbelievable, she's onto something here. And the truth is, there's actually research that laughing is very healthy. There is a, a fellow, some doctor in India in the 1990s who, who started this laughter yoga. And what he discovered is that the brain does not differentiate between real or simulated laughter. Laughter is laughter. I have here, this is from the Mayo Clinic. They have an article, it says, Stress Relief from Laughter, It's No Joke. When it comes to relieving stress, more giggles are just what the doctor ordered. Here's why. So it has short-term benefits and long-term effects. Short-term is that it stimulates many organs. Laughter enhances your intake of oxygen-rich air. It stimulates your heart, lungs, muscles, increases the endorphins that are released by your brain. Activate and relieve your stress response. It could take you from a state of being stressed out to uh, more chilled out, so to speak. And it could soothe tension. These are all part of the short-term benefits. Long-term effects, it could improve your immune system, it could relieve pain, it could do all sorts of wonderful things, increase personal satisfaction, and improve your mood. So, although laughing yoga was invented in 1995 by some fellow in India, we really, we've known this for thousands of years. Where does laughter yoga come from? Shlomo HaMelech was the one to invent laughing yoga. He writes in Mishle in two places, in source number 15, That a joyful heart gladdens the face, and a sad heart breaks the spirit. A similar pasuk he writes later on, two chapters later, A joyful heart is healing. A joyful heart is healing. And keep in mind, we all know this because every time you go to a doctor and he can't explain what's wrong, he'll say, are you stressed out? <laughs> Thank you. It reminds me there was a person that came to my high school and uh, he was talking to the, the high school boys and everyone walked, he had like private conversations with them and everyone walked out of the room saying, wow, he's like a prophet. He really knows what's going on. So again, being very skeptical, I spoke to a lot of the guys. What did he say? And they all said, he looked at me and he said, do you think about girls? Are you struggling with that? <laughs> right? Unbelievable! <laughs> Speaking to a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> um, Shlomo HaMelech, though, was telling us something that we did not know thousands of years ago, which is our health, our physical health, is very much dependent on our mental health, our, our, our state of mind, how we feel. The Ralbag comes along in the, the 13th century, and he explains these verses, these psukim, and he says you have to realize that when things are working well internally, then the blood's flowing, and your, your body moves better, and you're just a different person, you're more energetic, and you're more lively. So that's true when it starts inside, that could affect me on the outside. Says the Sefer Echinuch, we're not going to have time to go through this now, but this is one of the main themes in the Sefer Echinuch, which is that Adam Nifol Kafi Pulosov. A person is impacted, a person is influenced by his actions. What I do has a major, powerful hashpa, an influence on how I feel. So, therefore, if I'm not in a good mood, 
if I make myself smile, or we practice laughing yoga, according to Shlomo HaMelech and according to the Sefer HaChinuch, the way this works is, acting as if I feel this way can actually light the fire within me. So that's tool number one. We have to keep in mind, I don't have to feel it to do it. If I make myself do it, then I'll begin to feel it. Tool number two is allowing ourselves to be awed. One of my favorite quotes from Emerson, he says, the wonder is that we can see these trees and not wonder more. From a more Jewish source, Revolba writes, he says, the sad thing about life, and we started with this, the goal is not to think deeply, the goal is to live deeply. Revolba says the sad thing is, is that most people only look up at the sky to see if it's going to rain. Right? What kind of attire should I walk out in? Should I bring my umbrella? That's the only time I look up at the sky. We have to allow ourselves to live with a sense of awe, with a sense of rapture. What is rapture? It's a state of experience of being carried away by overwhelming emotion. The only way to do that is because we've seen everything before, and therefore nothing is new and nothing is exciting. The only way to allow oneself to be carried away or to be awestruck is to let yourself just absorb what's happening in front of you. Don't just see it, but look at it. Don't just see the tree, but, but allow yourself to be taken by the tree. Allow yourself to feel that sense of awe. Yirashamayim is the phrase we use to have awe of Hashem. We don't say Yiras Hashem though. The phrase is Yiras Shemayim because by looking at the heavens we see the expanse, we see how vast it is. That could inspire. That could bring a real sense of awe. We need awe in our lives. So tool number one is we act passionate and that creates, that lights the fire of passion within us. Tool number two is we need to allow ourselves to be awed and we do so by just being absorbed in the, in the here and now. And that brings us to tool number three. This is the power of now. Moshe Rabbeinu tells Klal Yisrael, Ata Yisrael ma Hashem Hashol Now Yisrael, what is Hashem asking from you? And that what's troublesome is, why would He say now? Just start off the verse by telling me, by asking me, what does Hashem want from you? What's the point of saying va'ata? Says the Chafetz Chaim, the message of Hashem is don't think about the past, don't think about the future. The only thing I have to think about is, right here and now, what am I supposed to be doing? The, the line I like to say is, we need to become intoxicated in the moment. Because the only thing that pulls me away from the here and now is concerns about the future, is guilt about the past. There's no way to live with passion and hergish if we don't allow ourselves to become intoxicated in the moment. How do you do that? You have to let yourself go a little bit. When, when you're hugging your child, don't just give him or her a little hug good night. You can do that once in a while, but sometimes you just have to take a moment and just smother them. You have to breathe it in. And even if they're 27 years old, that's okay. You gotta breathe it in, you gotta feel it, you gotta live it, you gotta love it. It doesn't happen automatically. Part of this as well is removing clutter. Removing clutter from our actual physical space, removing clutter from the mind, and removing clutter from our schedule. 
And there are many sources that speak about this idea of having Seder, having an order. We do so many things and we feel good to say, I am so busy. Oh my gosh, I got so little sleep last night. And we're saying it as if we want you to feel bad for me, but I'm also saying it because I want you to think I work really hard. So I'm really busy. The goal of life is not to be busy. The goal is to be effective. And if we find ourselves doing things over and over again that are just taking our time and energy and mind space, we have to stop doing those things. We have to prioritize. What am I here for? I have a limited time. A very limited time. I have to be effective. And then part of this is asking ourselves the question over and over again, am I aligned with my values? It's one thing for us to preach about how much we love family time and quality time. You have to have quality time with your kids. How often do you do that? What's the definition of quality time, by the way? This is true for a spouse or for a child or for anybody in life. The definition of quality time is time I'm spending with you when there's no agenda. I'm not trying to get you out of bed or to put on your shoes or to eat breakfast. With a spouse, I'm not trying to get you to do something for me to make me feel a certain way. It's just time spent together with no agenda. There are these, all these opportunities in life where we could allow ourselves to kind of keep on floating and stay in that, 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 that sleep sickness that was prevalent in the 1920s. But I think we have to choose that we're not going to continue in that catatonic state. We have to be alive. The, the, the goal, the thing we learn from Avram and from Moshe is that emotion doesn't happen by itself. When we're not being proactive, there are studies that actually show that the majority of the time you're not thinking, you're actually being negative. The majority of the time you're not being proactive in your thinking to be absorbed into a situation or in a relationship or into Torah or into tefillah, I'm actually negative. So if you're spacing out, you're wondering, what am I doing? The answer is, you're complaining. That's what it is. What are the tools of, of living with more passion? Tool number one is, think of laughter yoga, chitsonius moeris haponimius, doing things in a passionate way, if it's smiling, if it's laughing, if it's dancing. And I recommend this for families with young children. It's kind of silly and you might feel kind of strange, but there should be a dance night where you put on good Jewish Lebedic music and the family dances together. What an amazing thing to do. Ever seen a child, when music comes on, it's just automatic. They just they start moving. We have a little baby Sarah. That's what she does. You put on music, she just starts moving. It's part of who we are. We have to do the things that would express passion, and that brings on passion. Number two is we have to allow ourselves to be odd. That's through kind of looking past the lens of habit and being absorbed in the awesome reality of life. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And number three is realizing that we have nothing else. There is nothing else that's real besides now, and therefore we have to maximize the moment. We should have siyata deshmaya, we should have divine assistance in living with passion, with emotion, to uplift ourselves and everyone around us. Oh, sure.